0: Please take your Bibles. Let's turn together to the portion of Scripture we've just read, 2 Samuel chapter 8. Again, we come to a portion that's one of those portions you're reading in your own devotions, you're reading privately, and you're wondering where do we go with this? How do we properly apply it in our hearts? What is the Word of God uh, to our souls on this particular occasion? And it's one of those occasions to really seek God's face for help again to properly understand and apply. Uh, the word of the Lord. So let's pray with that in mind. Again, please note the words at the end of verse number uh, 6 again that are, uh, again, such a help. And we'll end at that point. It says, And the Lord preserved David uh, whithersoever he went. And that's the comfort, that's the encouragement. And may God bless us as we come now to pray and to consider the word uh, together. Let's all seek God's face in prayer. Eternal God and Father, Humbly, reverently, we come into thy presence again in Christ's name. And we are mindful, O Lord, of our need of the help of the Spirit of God. We realize, O Lord, that conflict is part of kingdom life. That's clearly shown throughout the Scriptures. And thus, O Lord, when we think of conflict here tonight, surely there is a message for each of our hearts. May it be the case for some that they realize that they are indeed in a battle, and they must wage war against their enemies. For others, dear Father, we pray you'd give them the grace and discernment direction whereby they would know greater measure of victory over their enemies. For some, dear Father, and uh, they're in the wrong side of the battle. Uh, they're on the side of the devil and sin in the world, and we pray, O oh God, that you'd cause them to see their need to submit to King Jesus, David's greater son, Bring the word of God to every heart and may come with relevance and power and then maybe indeed leave here tonight realizing that you've spoken to your hearts and we've met with our God. And So encourage us for Christ's sake, amen, amen. Well as I just said in the prayer, conflict is written large across the scriptures when it comes to the affairs of the kingdom. Not just in the Old Testament battles that Israel fight against their enemies, but indeed in the New Testament. When you think of passages that say the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, or the panoply of God, the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, surely it must be the case that Christ as our King is a King that conquers. He goes to battle, and we are those who battle in Christ's name. And so when you come back with that overview in mind, and you come to Second Samuel chapter 8, there are two directions in which you could go in way of application. Uh, we've seen many times that David points us here to Christ Jesus. We see David as indeed the, the one from whom Messiah comes, and Christ, of course, as the king, sits on David's throne and is David's greater son. And so in many ways you could see here, well, David has been crowned as king, and therefore we see the impact of his coronation in times of victory over the enemies. And so I thought, well, you could look at this in the case of Christ. He is indeed crowned, he's on David's throne, and we see in human history, we see the various conquests that Christ executes in the world. You could easily have a Reformation message here. That in the time of the Reformation, Christ went forth and conquered, and many of his enemies were brought under his rule. The glories of Christ as our conquering king. It's a message we should never tire off. The same king still sits upon the same throne, ruling and reigning over his enemies. And so we have hope today, the passage should indeed give us hope today, that as David battles on the east and the west, and if you go a map and you'll see all of these battles are taking place around Israel, you see David is indeed the conqueror. And we praise God for that message. But David also stands here as a man of faith. We have noticed David in his strengths and at times in his weaknesses. He is not the Messiah. He is not the Christ. The Christ is yet to come. And so at times we read David and we see We see his courage. We see his conviction as a man walking with God. And at times, yes, we see sometimes his compromise and we see some of his errors. And we'll see more of those, of course, in future chapters. And therefore, it is right and proper to see this passage again as an illustration of a man of faith battling with his enemies. A godly man, a man in conflict with enemies. And if you don't see it in David's, well, surely you see it in those here under David's rule. Because look at the language, verse number 1, And David smote the Philistines. Verse number 3, David smote also Hadarazer. Now that does not mean for one second that David himself individually and singularly went out and fought all the battles. It's using David as the representative of the nation. And so he goes with his soldiers under his banner, and they fight together against the enemies. And so in the conquest, you have the king overviewing the entire battle, winning the victory, but his soldiers also individually win their own personal battles, and they do so under their king. And so in many ways, when you see this portion of Scripture, you're seeing evidence and you're seeing illustrations of the individual battles that we face as the soldiers of Christ. So soldiers of Christ arise. But before you think it's time to draw a physical sword and go into the world, we should reckon with the fact that in the Scriptures there's a great degree of attention drawn to the battle we face with the enemies within ourselves not our enemies. Oh, yes, there are spiritual forces of darkness and evil places. We, we battle against the devil and his hordes. But we also must come to terms with the fact that we have a battle to fight with our own flesh. You see, turn across, please, to Romans chapter 8. Because when you see spiritual warfare in the New Testament... It does go in different directions, but there is no lack of data regarding the need to win the battle within our own selves. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. There's spiritual conflict. Warfare. It's a matter of life and death, according to Paul here. Uh, We are obligated, if we are to live, to put to death the deeds of the body. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it through the power of the Spirit, so we'll see more of that shortly. But we still realize that there is clear instruction here that we are those who must fight and put to death the deeds of the body. Now, I think the reference here, the language of the deeds of the body here, is not simply referring to those things we do with our hands, or feet, but also refers to everything that is part of our flesh, if you like, part of our humanity, and thus it includes our attitudes, it includes our words, our thoughts. All of these things are involved in this warfare. So let me show you that, and then we'll come back. So keep keep a finger in Romans chapter 8, but turn across to Colossians chapter 3, where Paul again lifts up the issue of the spiritual warfare when it comes to the enemies within ourselves. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 5. Mortify, your, therefore, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now that list, again, giving some of the ancient language there, is speaking to me all manner of lusts, pleasures, clearly sexual pleasures, but also other pleasures of this world that are abused and misused including those issues of material possessions at the end where it says, and put to death mortify covetousness, which is idolatry. And so you have this issue that it is the responsibility of every believer to wage mortal combat against those things that come upon us. And we should recognize this. We should not presume that we are better or more spiritual than the Colossians. I was speaking again at the ACCC on... Uh, Wednesday about the man sanctified meat for the master's use. That was the text that I was assigned. And again, the importance in that context where Paul tells Timothy to flee from youthful lusts. And he made the point to the men gathered there that youthful lusts may predominate in youth, but they do not die with age. And it's important that even those who are growing year by year, getting older year by year, understand the things that they thought they had dealt with in youth are things that still can be an issue in more advanced years, including things like sexual immorality. So we've got to keep fighting these battles. Got to wage warfare at all times against all of these matters and seek to put these things to death. But note, please, in Colossians chapter 3 that these enemies, and again, they're named here for us, they are not restricted to these external sins that, again, so easily beset the child of God. Yes, you've got the language, the wrath of God comes on children for these things. But look what it says in verse 7 In the which ye also walked sometime when you lived in them. So Paul, again, is warning the believers, do not fall back. You won victories, but don't fall back into further troubles. But then look also, verse number 8. But now ye also, and it's the word also that I highlight, but now ye also put off all these. And you realize that the list of verse number 5 is by no means exhaustive. You've got things like anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy. Filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another. All of these things are also included in the list. And even that's not exhaustive. So, what are we to do? Well, as a preacher, I, 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 cannot, I cannot go up and down the row and point out the particular enemies that you will face. I can only suggest to you that these are things that are clearly prevalent in the Colossian church and they're likely prevalent in every church. These are the common sins that commonly come upon all of God's people in all ages. Pilate Paul highlights these particular areas. But if we're going to deal with the subject tonight of spiritual warfare, it may well help you to think in your own life of areas that you need to deal with. This should be personal tonight. I said to you that if you're a child of God, you're in Christ's armor, you're under His banner and you're fighting warfare as a child of Christ under the banner of the cross, so therefore you should know who your own enemies are, and it's helpful to think in this regard. We thought this morning about conscience. Did your conscience smite you this week? Is there something in your life that you know is a continual battle? You're fighting with this in your life day by day. It may be words that you use in the home It may be thoughts that you have in your mind, in the privacy of your own space. It may be deeds that you're guilty of. It may be the workplace. It may be the church. It may be the family. Every possible sphere, every possible issue. I don't know your mind. I don't know your heart. I don't know your life. I'm saying to you, you know. And if you are not battling, then either you're sinlessly perfect or you've dropped the sword. And you've got to the point, I've arrived. I have no more battles to face. This is a time of peace and rest. Hebrews 4 makes it clear that we await our rest. So don't be deceived. Do not presume for a second there's not areas in your life that you need to fight the battle. But ask for God to give you clarity regarding these things. And so, when you go back to Romans chapter 8, you see that... What I've said already regarding 2 Samuel chapter 8 does indeed hold. I've said to you, see there a battle. David is the representative. He's the king, but under David is his army. And you go back to Romans chapter 8, you'll see that the strength that we have to conquer these enemies, verse number 8, if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, shall live. But look at verse number 11. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead also shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now I'm not going back to all the details there. Simply put it this way Christ has won the victory and we battle in his trail. That's the issue. And so the battle, the conquest has already been accomplished for us in Christ's name. And so it's like the battle comes and they go to Moab or the Philistines. And David, he's in the forefront. And he has that decisive conquering victory. And the army come behind him. And we mop up the spoils. The battle already accomplished on Calvary on our behalf. And so I trust you see the imagery. And so we see David... And we see the armies really here as men who are fighting by faith. And what are the lessons we can learn? Are the things we can glean from 2 Samuel chapter 8 in this regard? Surely there are things that can benefit us and help us as we go forward in this spiritual conflict. Note, first of all, the timing of the conflict. Verse number 1, we have a time stamp given to us in verse number 1 of chapter 8. And after this. Now, the words that came to pass are almost like a literary device just to lead us on in the story. But after this points us back, of course, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Chapter 7 is one of the high points of David's life and ministry. He has several, but this clearly is one where the Lord met with him. What happens in chapter 7? One word, communion. Chapter 7 marks a time of special communion between David and his God. What does communion look like, fellowship look like? It looks like God speaking to David and giving him a word, and David responding in prayer. It's a time of devotion. It's a time of sweet fellowship. And after that time, after a time of development, after a time, sorry, of, of devotion, we see then the conflict comes. The word that comes from God, the thankful prayer that follows, are then followed by after this it came to pass. Again, there are two ways in which we consider this particular issue. First of all, please realize that spiritual conflict often arises after a time of sweet communion. This is a real issue. Be aware that when the Lord draws nigh, a challenge may well follow. Think of the Lord and His baptism. A voice from heaven, the Spirit descends upon Him like a dove, and after His baptism He goes into the wilderness and spends a time of great trial. Think of Gethsemane. The conflict of Calvary. And preceding the conflict of Calvary, that time of communion when the Son falls on His face before the Father, And the Father sends angels to strengthen the Son. Communion followed by conflict. We should be aware of that. And comforted by it. Because as conflict often arises after a time of sweet communion, so we should reckon with the fact, secondly, that communion prepares and strengthens us for the conflict. That the communion is given to us by God in order that we can know the victory. You see, you want to do battle with sin in the context of a closer walk with God. And yet, that is where we often fall short. For when sin rages and temptations are strong, we often know defeat in the area of communion. Tell me it's not true. You know, young people, I, I really I want you to understand these things. When you come to the house of God here, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, I really, I want to equip you for things that you will counter in your life going forward. And there will times may well come that you will fall prey of particular temptations, and you may know defeat. And in such a season, it may well be your temptation to keep away from the Lord. But when the battle is fierce, you must be closest to the Lord in the fierceness of the battle. And in that time, it's not a case of lessening your devotions. It's a time to redouble your efforts and say, I need particular seasons of prayer with the Lord. Particular times to meet with God privately. Because it is as we know communion with God that we can then know victory in the conflict. See, what does David go forward here? See, chapter 8, I believe, in a strict context is God answering the prayer of verse number 29 of chapter 7. So if you're going to interpret this in the strictness of the context, again, I'm, I'm taking some spiritual applications from it tonight, but in the strictness, David prays the prayer, therefore now that it please thee to bless the house of thy servant. Chapter 8, the Lord says okay. That's in essence what's happening here. It is, it is in light of the promise of God's, and the prayerful devotions that the victories then come, because communion with God gives us the strength to go forward in the conflict. And so if you, if you find yourself, and perhaps you are having a very difficult time and there's a particular sin that seems to be holding sway over you, get back to foundations, get before God', seek God's face in communion, and cling, hold, cling on to the promises of God's sin. Shall not have dominion over you. Romans chapter 6. You go back to the word, you go back to the word of God, and you plead the word in prayer. Lord, you've said this, may it be so, may it be so in my life that I have the victory you've promised for me. Give it praise. Therefore now that it please thee. And after this it came to pass. Communion with God was the foundation of this conflict. And David knew the victory in light of his walk with the Lord. You see, who we are in Christ Jesus drives us to put sin to death. We realize that we're in the kingdom, we're in the Lord's battle, and we're going to win the victory in that sense. And the word of God assures us. God's future will for us gives us hope. And the battle is won. It's a simple thought. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. The simplest thought in the Christian life. And yet sometimes people get so caught up. How can I, how can I win the battle in this particular sin? What mechanism, what, what things should I use? The sword of the word of God. The armor of God put on with prayer. In the Christian life, it's not that complex. That's something regarding the timing of the conflict. Secondly, please note the targets of the conflict. The targets of the conflict. And here again, I want to draw some spiritual application from these, these issues. First of all, note in verse number one, the target is Gamma. This place, it's an interesting name, a place. Again, different ideas in the commentators regarding what it means. Some suggest it is a province of Gath. The word itself speaks of a bridal. And Brian, if you like, pulling together various things. And so as you turn to 1 to Chronicles, please, uh, you'll see it mentioned here, 1 Chronicles. In the parallel, you'll get the idea of this word. 1 Chronicles chapter 1, now after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them and took Gath and her towns out of the hand of the Philistines. So Methegama is given by interpretation in 1 Chronicles chapter 18 as Gath and her towns. And so the thought of many is that when it refers to Methic Gamma, it has as idea the place that is the center of the Philistine control. this central area, this central controlling region. In other words, when David comes to fight, he fights strategically. He knows where to go. And he knows that winning there will be decisive in the larger context. Again, there's a war going on in our own time in Ukraine, and you think of all the strategy of the Russians trying this place and that place. There is a general understanding that there are places of particular unique importance in a battle. And so, David has fought a battle here. How do you apply this? Well, I think there is certainly the application But when engaging in spiritual conflict with the flesh, we must focus on the center of the battle. Where does the flesh manifest itself? In our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds sometimes. All these various ways which we see the flesh working itself out in our experience. But at the center of it all... There is pride and love for self. Every sin that we commit has in some way a connection back to pride and our love for self. Desiring peace. Desiring peace perhaps rather than dealing with a particular issue. Perhaps pursuing pleasure rather than the way of uprightness. Whatever it is, there's a love for self that's at the core And that itself must be put to death. It's the root of all sin. Getting to the recognition that Christ rules, not self. And I serve the king and not myself. And you have that decisive battle in the warfare and it's through that decisive victory that other battles are then won. I don't want to over-spiritualize this I think the application is clear. It makes sense. And so I just simply ask you to play it in your own mind. I understand there is a a proper place for self-love. You see, true, true self-love drives us to Christ. If you love yourself, you want to escape from the wrath of God and you're, you're going to run to Christ. And so even the action of faith is in some way a love for self. But it's a love for self that is spiritual, but it's also that love for self that is so carnal. That it's a, that's a pursuit of all that is ungodly. So, what did you think about when I asked you to consider your conscience in the past week? Can you trace a line between that issue and love for self? Perhaps it is fine in the home place. I'd rather exalt myself than love my wife. Is that the issue? And perhaps it is the issue, perhaps in some area of, of a temptation towards adultery and fornication. I'd rather sin for my own pleasure than do what's right. Perhaps it's words used in the workplace. I'd rather put down a colleague to make myself look good than admit my own feelings and take the place of humility. You see, so you get the illustrations and there, there are many that can be given the decisive the victory in the battle. So, Methagamah is part, it's one of the targets. Secondly, there is Moab, verse 2, and he smote Moab. Right, Moab's, again, an interesting place in biblical history and narrative. Of course, Moab comes from, again, backslidden lot. It has that lineage in its, in its background and its history. I'll turn across to Numbers 2. Twenty-two, Just to get an idea about Moab here that we can then make proper application. Numbers 22. You'll see where Moab is. It's on the east side of Israel. A neighbor of Israel divided by the river Jordan. Verse 22. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side, Jordan, by Jericho. And we'll see that It was indeed Balak, the king of the Moabites, who hired Balaam to curse Israel. Chapter 22, verse number 4, Moab said unto the elders of Midian, and you see Balak, verse 4, the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time, and he goes to try to get Balaam to curse Israel. And so it's a neighbor that is hostile against Israel. You cross and you'll see chapter 25 of Numbers. And you'll see this neighbor was a particular snare to the people. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. They're a snare to the children of Israel. And they bring about sin. A neighbor tempting God's people to idolatry and iniquity. A neighbor hostile against the Lord's people. Surely it is an image and a picture of the world. The world is the neighbor of the church. The church lives among the world and the world that hates the church and the world that seeks to bring the church to ruin. The world that desires cursings upon the church. Uh, The world in that sense and how we must wage war against the world. Put these things to death. Again, in traditional Fundamental circles, you could then get a list of particular sins of the world. Stop dancing, stop drinking, stop going to the movie house. All those things that are, that are given us, these are worldly things. And, and by the way, there is great wisdom in such a message. But these are not the world. These are the temptations that the world brings. But the world itself is a, is a mindset and a mindset that's against everything that is God's. And so you'll see it in the entertainment industry. You'll see the fruitfulness of the world in these things. And so we avoid those things for that reason. But at the core, there are thought concepts, a mindset that we must wage war against. And I think in times, in different cultures, in different generations, Moab may fight in different ways. Let me give you three ways in which the world today may well infiltrate the church. It may do so in its thinking on morality. What is the rule that governs morality at the present time? Anything goes so long as people consent. That's the world's lesson today regarding morality. And that may well creep into the thinking of the church in the sense that we realize, well, we might say, well, well what harm are they doing between themselves? And surely they're, they're not they're harming me they're Just live and let live. And, and let it be. And so do you see how easy it would be for Moab to come in and alter our thinking and our mindsets? We've got to put these things to death. We've got to be clear regarding our young people, teaching them clearly that there is an absolute standard for morality. And it's in the Word of God. And in the context of my illustration in terms of morality and, uh, and even sexual morality, it has this issue. One man, one woman for life and marriage. That's God's standard morality. And no matter what Moab says, that's what God says. So we fight the battle. You think of the issue of spirituality. Again, in a very similar sense, the, the world's thinking on spirituality today is, well, you believe what you want to believe. It's fine, you're free to do what you want, but I'm free to do what I want. And that comes and it affects the church. Do you know what that does? That undermines the foundation of a young person's convictions. They get fed this all the time. Look how nice a person this one is or that one is. Do you see their spirituality and how it shows up in kindness? You know, this particular cult or this particular religion, they're, they're very socially minded and they, they do all these good things. How can they be wrong regarding their convictions? And so the foundations are undermined. It's like, it's like a digger getting beneath the foundations of the house of the convictions of our young people. Because the Bible is clear there is only one true and living God. His Son is Jesus, the only Savior of sinners. See how dangerous these things are? Think of the issue of prosperity. How does the world view prosperity? Well, what counts as what is now? That's prosperity. And therefore, what you have now is a measure of your prosperity as of course, the Word of God teaches us that we may have nothing here, but we are rich in Christ Jesus. You see how easy these things come into the church? You tell me, tell me I'm wrong if I suggest to you that the world's thinking of prosperity has not infiltrated the church. And the minds of many of our young people where they realize that if I'm going to be prosperous, I must be prosperous in this world. That's not true. You can flourish and prosper with having very little of this world's goods. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. And I go, yes, that sounds good until Monday morning comes around. See, so you've got to take the sword of the word and put Moab to death. Reckon with these enemies that come upon us. The second target, therefore, is Moab. And now, what is interesting here, and, and again, it's so difficult to know exactly what is good and what is evil here. Moab, David has these lines. He keeps one full line alive. Uh, Moabites become David's servants. It may well be the case that here there was some compromise and tolerance. Later on in 2 Kings, you see that when Ahab dies, the Moabites rebel against Israel in Joshua's time when there's great trouble in the land. Just a passing comment don't tolerate a little worldliness, don't, don't say, well, a little bit's okay. These are enemies that will destroy the soul of the child of God. Thirdly, the third target, you have Methagamah, you have Moab, and then just one summary word, you have more. Quite a few more other battles. You've got verse 3, Samotha also had it easier. takes the chariots from him, then the Syrians come and they help out, and you've all of these various ways in which the battle comes Simple word, do not be weary in well-doing. Don't win one victory and presume that's the job done. Battles come day by day, week by week. We've got to continue to fight against the deeds of the body and put them to death continually. The more. Well, finally, very briefly, note the triumph in the conflict here. Triumph is achieved in, in various ways. There are certainly times of conquest but there's also times when David executes control. So you'll see all the various references here to garrisons, to tributes, all these things that are mentioned throughout the rest of the chapter. So there are times when David's kingdom rules in such a way that there is a subduing of the enemy without the enemy being removed altogether. Other times, there is conquest. So conquest is the first Control is also executed in this chapter. Now, here again, I'm just using this as illustration. There are times in the Christian life that we will know decisive victory over a particular sin, and it may never rear its head again in the rest of our Christian living. But there are other sins, and they're always in the background, and it is our responsibility to exercise control over them under christ's rule as part of christ's army you see sometimes a child of god gets sort of discouraged and they'll say i can't seem to get the victory over this particular sin well the question is do you have that sin under your control is it a case that yes temptations are there and they come regularly But you know what it is by God's grace and by His Spirit to subdue these things so they do not come and harm your spiritual life. In the context of our remaining sin, that may well be what we achieve until glory. Conquest, control, in all things consecration, thirdly. Consecration. Because what you see in this portion is David dedicating the spoils of victory to the Lord. Time and time again, look at verse 11 for an illustration. Which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord. What does all that mean? It's a recognition that every victory David won is in God's power and by God's grace. And there's no other way to win a victory in spiritual conflict. It's only in the power of God. And so that there are these two verses that really are used to summarize the whole. Verse 6 and verse 14. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. And then down in verse number 14, And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. David, he's fighting under a promise. The promise of God. He's fighting in the power of God. For the purpose of God. And we are engaged in the same conflict. Different time. If you like a different era of the kingdom, post-Calvary, different battles, Christ's kingdom, not of this world. But we must fight in the power of God. And the consecration of the spoils of war, they remind us, they illustrate the point, that as we make progress in the things of God, we must give all the glory to God. It's not because we are strong, it's because we're weak. It's because we are weak, but He is strong. That's how we come to know victory in our spiritual lives. And so let's live in that regard. Let's live dependent upon the power of God, whatever the conflict may be. You may struggle to control your mouth. And you get up every day and think to yourself, I'm going to do better in controlling my mouth. Only in the power of God you may struggle to control your eyes. And that battle is fought with your eyes, the members of your body, and they wander here, there, and everywhere. And the only way that you control your eyes is in the power of God. You may struggle. You may struggle to control your mind with a bitter heart. Bitterness comes to the forefront of your mind. Each and every day you rise, you have bitter thoughts against someone or something, or against the Lord Himself. You say, oh, I know this is eating me apart. I I can't live like this. I've got to put bitterness to death in my soul. Only in the power of God. The list goes on. You can multiply example upon example upon example. So we fight with the sword. But we are a strange army. Because we fight with the sword in our hands. but We fight upon our knees. And fighting upon our knees, we know the victory. The Lord preserved David with us wherever he went. I am conscious. This is one of those sermons that is so vague and general, and I've tried to get application. And so as I close in prayer, now let's all pray together. And I'll ask the Lord to apply this in your heart. It may be a word stored in season. It may be something that's very relevant to you today. I don't know. i leave it with the Lord. And may God be pleased to use His Word in each of your hearts. Let's all bow together in prayer. Eternal God, I do pray you take your Word tonight. And it may be the case that there are people in this gathering are watching on and there's a particular issue in their life and they, they, they realize they're under, they're under attack and there's a victory that must be won. May they realize, oh God, that they... That they fight under Christ's banner. David's greater son has gone and won the victory on their behalf. And may we come behind our Savior and may we enjoy the victory that He has won for us. Help us, therefore, to put the deeds of the body to death. Help us to engage in this mortal combat, this spiritual warfare. Grant us grace. Grant us the help of the Spirit. So we can only win the victory by the Spirit. And so help us to fight upon our knees using the Word of God. Give us grace tonight. Thank you for your Word. Again, may you lead us on and guide us in these things. And again, particularly pray for our young people, uh, that they, they find themselves in a, in a very hostile environment. Give them the grace to put on the whole armor of God and bless their souls, we pray. Watch over us as we leave. May we leave with your fear. Oh God, may your favor rest and abide upon us in Jesus' precious name. Amen.